0: If you have your Bibles tonight, you can open them to Second Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3. I believe I have a strong word of, from the Lord uh, for you tonight. I know I've heard from him. I know that it, this is the word he wants me to deliver in this place tonight. And so uh, I just want you to bow your head for a moment and just ask him to give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. That this word would fall on good ground, not a hardened heart. So if your heart is hardened over anything tonight, I promise you it's not worth it. Let God soften that area of your heart because you want this seed of his word to penetrate and bring a harvest. And it will not work on hardened ground. No matter what somebody's done to you, said to you, uh, whatever, it's not worth it. Ask God to soften your heart in these moments, Uh, I I just pray, and I ask you to do that. Uh, Paul wrote this passage that we're going to look at tonight over 2,000 years ago. But what we're going to read will sound exactly like the times we're currently living in. Paul is giving us a picture of the cultural climate of the last days. And it's amazing to me, as I studied it this past week, how similar it sounds to the times we're living in. And it would be very easy for each of us to detach ourselves from this passage and say it's about the world we're living in and other people. But I don't want you to do that. I I want you to take an honest and a sincere look at your own heart as we maneuver through this passage tonight. So if you have your Bibles, first our second Timothy chapter three. I'm going to read verses one through, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see where we go. Paul says to Timothy, but know this, know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters. Proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of of godliness but denying its power and from this and from such people turn away and from such people turn away Paul says to Timothy but know this in the last days perilous times will come he, he, he stresses it but know this And and one translation says, but mark this, mark my words. Paul is using that phrase to get Timothy's attention and to get our attention. But there is a conjunction. You know that conjunctions join together what came prior to what is about to follow. So it's important that you know what came prior to Paul saying this. And and I'll just summarize it for you because in chapter 2, Paul is talking to Timothy, this got me so much this week, I, I could hardly stand it. I was so convicted by it. Paul is talking to Timothy in chapter 2 uh, about men who were masquerading as godly. Frauds, people who were inauthentic, people in the church. And he's going to, dis- to continue that discussion in this next passage, the passage that we read. In chapter 2, he warned against word battles, against godless chatter, and foolish and ignorant disputes. I'm I'm stunned at the the amount of time and energy we spend disputing and, and, and talking back and forth about things that are just silly and a waste of time. He exhorted Timothy to pursue righteousness, faith, and love, and peace out of a pure heart. He stressed a pure heart over and over and over. He warned that the servant of the Lord must not quarrel. Hear me. We've got to start taking the word of God seriously. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. Being able to teach... And not resentful. I, I spoke to a pastor friend of mine this week, and, and, and her husband had done something extremely hurtful to her. And I said to her, let me tell you what I'm studying. You must not quarrel. You must not quarrel. Because you need to be able to teach. And if you become resentful, if you let that thing that he did to you make you resentful, you will not be able to teach. And I said, girl, you need to be able to teach. Servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all to be able to teach and not resentful. That word not resentful, that phrase not resentful, it, it means to be patient with people who hurt you, who are unkind towards you, and to guard your heart about, against becoming calloused and resentful in the midst of wrongdoing. That's hard to do. As I was studying chapter 2 this week, I read a quote by John Stott that said, when people rose up in opposition against Jesus, he did not retaliate or resist. He gave his back to smiters, his cheeks to those who pulled out his beard, his face to those who spat upon him, and eventually he allowed himself to be led like a sheep, silent and unresisting to the slaughter. (laughs) We are called to do the same. To learn to live as unresisting as sheep being led to the slaughter. That kind of meekness and gentleness must characterize those who claim to be servants, claim to be servants of the Lord. We make it so about us. You hurt my feelings. And I'm not going to resist that, the urge to tell you that. I'm going to make sure you know it. Paul doesn't want Timothy a leader of the church, to be uninformed and deceived. He's encouraging himself, he, he's encouraging Timothy to look at himself and those around him. Notice in verse 19, this got me so much. Chapter 2, verse 19, Paul says, the Lord knows who are his. The Lord knows those who are his. <laughs> can, can I just tell you, we are not fooling God. You, you might be fooling me, you might be fooling Susie sitting next to you or Sam down the street, but you are not fooling God he goes on to say let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity in other words to stop entertaining evil in their life then at the end of the chapter he talks to people who are in opposition with others he says pray for those who are in opposition to you Timothy Pray that they're given a spirit of repentance, that they come to their senses and they escape the snare of the devil being ca- taken captive to do his will. I told you last week, there, there there's some gentlemen uh, that I know that, 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 that are, are husbands to people who I love very dearly. I'm praying the scripture for them that God would grant them a spirit of repentance, that they would come face to face with truth, and, and that they would come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil because they've been taken captive to do his will. I'm praying that, is it, am I not, Leslie, feverishly, morning and night for these, these men. I believe that God will honor that prayer. It's coming straight out of his word. Paul is saying to Timothy, This is important that you know this. And after this, that is when the conjunction comes in. He says, but know this. Be aware of all of this stuff and know this. And it's a present imperative. It's a command to know this. It's a command to know something that we might be tempted to be oblivious of or just to to not pay attention to. It means to know and keep knowing, to make this truth our continuous, ongoing practice. It's a command, meaning it's not optional. He says, know this, that in the last day, perilous times will come, hard times, trouble, terrible times will come. The Bible makes it clear that in the last days, they will be hard. And there's no place that makes it more clear than 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, in the last days. He, he, he says, there'll be terrible times, perilous times in the last days. When Paul is speaking of the last days, so many of us think that he's talking about the time just prior to the second coming of Christ. <laughs> and, and, and many of us, even in this room tonight, probably don't think that's coming anytime soon. I am not one of them, but, but some of you may think that is so far off. I remember as a little girl growing up, my mom would always say to me, the Lord is coming back soon, Rhea. And I'd be like, Mama, you've been telling me that since I was a little girl. I, You know, I'm 20-some years old, and you're still telling me the Lord is coming back soon. How, what, how soon is soon, Mom? And and some of you think that same thing is taking place here, that we are not in the last days. I would disagree with you. Paul says that, that it, well, 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 I think that, when we talk about the last days, so many of us think about the mark of the beast, or, or we talk about wars and rumors of wars, and that stuff is not happening right now, so we don't think we're in the last days. But, but, but in one sense, we have been living in the last days since Jesus came. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 confirms this when it says, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. He's saying the last days started when Jesus ascended to heaven. John Stott says, it may seem natural to apply this term to a future epoch, to the days immediately preceding the end when Christ returns. But biblical usage will not allow us to do this. For it is the conviction of the New Testament authors that the new age arrived with Jesus Christ. And there that therefore with his coming the old age has begun to pass away and the last days have dawned. Thus, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, quoted Joel's prophecy. This is what I talked to you about last week. He quoted Joel's prophecy that in the last days, God would pour out his spirit upon all flesh, and he declared that this prophecy had now been fulfilled. So we are in the last days. Similarly, the letter to the Hebrews begins with an assertion that God, who had spoken of old to the fathers through the prophet, had in these last days spoken to us through his son. So we are living in the last days. So look at verse 4, or look at verse 5. Paul uh, describes the condition of people's hearts in the last days, and then he commands Timothy in verse 5 to to turn away from such people, to have nothing to do with such people. So if we weren't in the last days, then the people who Paul's describing in verses 1 through 4 would not even exist yet. And yet he tells Timothy to turn away from those kind of people, to stay away from those kind of people. And so therefore, Paul believes that we're in the last days as well. Either way, whatever you believe about this, it's evident that history is moving toward the actual last days and the return of Christ. And so it's important, it's important to me that you have this kind of information Sadly, because Jesus has delayed his coming, some people don't believe he's coming back at all. And I promise you, he is coming back as promised. And we need to be purposeful about discerning the times, and Paul has given us some help in being able to do that. He says, in the last days, perilous times will come. That word perilous means terrible. It means very difficult. The word means hard to bear, troublesome, dangerous, hard to do. Harsh, fierce, savage. Rick Renner says it's used in various pieces of literature to depict wild, vicious, uncontrollable animals that are unpredictable and dangerous. Meaning the last days will be unpredictable and dangerous. The only other place, this is fascinating to me. The word that Paul uses to describe the last days, perilous. The only other word in the whole Bible where that word is used is in Mark, I believe it's Mark chapter 8, verse 28. Where he's describing two demon-possessed men Men in the Gadarenes. And, and these men were so fierce and violent that no one wanted to pass their way. That people were terrified of them and didn't want to get close to them. That's the word that he uses to describe, uh, to, where he uses this word perilous, the only other place in the Bible. It's fascinating to me that it's used to describe someone who's under a demonic influence. Warren Wiersbe says, this suggests that the violence of the last, time, of the last days will be energized by demons. Don't tell me that's not the time we're living in. Matthew, uh, Leslie said it's Matthew eight twenty-eight, And we know that this is true because 1 Timothy 4, 1 cautions us. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times, in the last days, some will abandon their faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. I hear some of the stuff coming out of pulpits right now, the stuff that people are propagating. They're, they're saying, did you hear so-and-so's sermon about this? And I want to say, have you lined that up with the word of God? That is a doctrine of demons. It does not even line up with the word of God. And yet what happens is because we don't have the word of God richly dwelling within us, we can't line up something we're hearing in the pulpit and say, "Mm, that does not line up with God's word. We need to be careful because Scripture says in the last days, doctrine of demons will come out of the pulpit. And we need to be careful uh, about it. Paul is warning us in Timothy. That there's a buzzword right now that goes on. Uh, people are throwing around uh, uh, about the world. They're saying that the times we're living in are unprecedented. That's the word, unprecedented. And I think it's actually a good choice of words. The times, though, may be unprecedented, but can I just tell you what? They are not unanticipated because Paul 2,000 years ago, over 2,000 years ago, prophesied about them. He told us what to expect over 2,000 years ago. He predicted and added the command that we, would become, we should become knowledgeable about them so we could recognize the time. It's so interesting to me that, that in Matthew 16, Jesus scolds the Pharisees. He says, he, he says you, you try to discern the weather. You're masters at discerning the weather. Red at night, sailors delight. Red in the morning, sailors take warning. You, you use these things to predict the weather, but you cannot discern the times. You're not able to use scripture then to predict the times that you're living in. He says you can't interpret the the signs of the times. Paul was giving us some some guidance to interpret the signs of the times. Uh, These were words written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as a forewarning to us. Not to frighten us, but to awaken our soul and make us alert so that we can keep our lamps trimmed and full of oil and we can burn brightly. We don't want him coming back to find his bride asleep. We've got to wake up, church. Warren Wearsby says there is no doubt that these characteristics that Paul is talking about started to appear in Paul's day, and now they have increased in intensity. It's not simply, (laughs) it's not simply that we have more people in the world or better news coverage. It appears that evil evil is deeper and of greater intensity and that it's being accepted and promoted by society in a bolder way. It is not that we have small pockets of rebellion here and there. All society seems to be in ferment and rebellion. We are indeed in terrible times. Now Paul goes on to describe these hard to bear, terrible, dangerous, savage times in further detail. And he's giving us a picture of how they can manifest in our lives. Or how we, unaware, can be a part uh, of bringing in these perilous uh, times. And I don't want you to miss that. I don't want you to miss what I went over with you about chapter 2. Because it is a connection, even though it's separated by um, uh, chapter divisions. It is still one continuous thought. And Paul ends chapter 2 by saying there are people who have fallen into the snare of the devil and have been taken captive to do the will, but, but, but to do his will. But hear me say this. There are perilous times coming. He's making the connection between being taken captive to doing the devil's will, being caught in the snare of the devil and the characteristics that he is about to name. Now, it is so easy to look at these and and say, I know somebody who behaves like that. And I want to really encourage you tonight to say, how do I fit in this list? How have I been taken captive by the devil to do his will? How am I caught in a snare and, and instead of doing God's will, I'm doing the devil's will? Because Paul is making it really clear in this passage. Let's look at it. Verses two through four. He says, for men will be lovers of themselves. Oh my goodness. That word lovers of themselves, it means to have great affection for, to be a friend of self. (laughs) I was studying this and I went out, I took my mother-in-law out for lunch. I love her so much. And I was sitting across the table from one of the most godly women I know and I was asking her, we we were talking about death, and I said, oh, Nana, do you have any fear of dying? And she said, oh, yes. And I kind of was taken back because I thought, this is the most godly woman I know. Why would she have fear of dying? And I said, Nana, tell me about that. And she said, because I am far too fond of myself. And I had just studied... (laughs) I wanted to say, Nana Paul writes about that, but I, I didn't do it. <laughs> this is actually an adjective which means literal loving of oneself, selfish, intent on one's own interests, concerned solely with one's own desires, needs, or interests. It manifests itself as selfishness, self centeredness, and being self consumed. It is all about me. Rather than living to please God and others, their first concern is their own needs, their own desires, their own feelings, their own interests. Everything else takes a back seat to their needs being met. Barclay says, lovers, love of self is the basic sin from which all others flow. That's interesting to me. The moment a man makes his own will the center of life, divine and human relationships are destroyed. Obedience to God and charity to men both become impossible. The essence of Christianity is not the enthronement, but the obliteration of self. Jesus was clear in Mark 8, 34 through 36. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's shall find it. Paul says in the last time, in the last days, that men will be lovers of themselves. They'll be lovers of money. Uh, it's an adjective meaning loving money or covetousness. It, it describes a person obsessed with money, one who's greedy. And, and it naturally flows out of a selfish heart of loving oneself. And, and the Bible says it's the root of all kinds of evil. So lovers of self, lovers of money, they'll be boastful. The Greek word describes an arrogant individual who exaggerates or is disposed to exaggerate their own worth or importance in an overbearing manner. It's someone who embellishes a story, exaggerates, or stretches the truth to promote self. One commentator writes, he magnifies himself in an attempt to impress others. Boastful people brag about their accomplishments. They're know-it-alls who try to deceive people into thinking they're brilliant. They exaggerate their abilities, their accomplishments, their talents, their reputations, and their values to society and the church. They're completely lacking in humility. They speak to draw attention to themselves and in their thoughts see themselves as the center of the universe. They're proud, Paul says, Proud and boastful are two different things. It's interesting to me, the difference. Uh, proud means they're arrogant. It um, they literally means to show oneself above or to appear above. It's acting snooty or high and mighty. It, it, it is one of the things that Leslie and I, we pray together every morning. And one of the things that, that I pray constantly, there's a scripture that says, uh, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought And I pray constantly, Lord, make me aware when I think more highly of myself than I ought. It doesn't say don't think about yourself. It says don't think about yourself more highly than you ought. And I I repent of it all the time. I say, Lord, I'm sorry for thinking more highly of myself than I ought. Quite frankly, I'm sorry for thinking of myself at all because I'm called to be dead. I'm called dead people. My my biological father was a mortician. Trust me, dead people don't respond. They don't react. They they, they don't have feelings. They they don't get hurt. They, They don't want to be noticed. Barclay adds, it does not so much mean the man who's conspicuous and to whom others look up, as the man who stands on his own little self-centered pedestal and looks down. The characteristics of of a man who's proud is that he looks down on everyone else. The difference between being boastful and proud is the sin of the man who's proud is in his heart. He might even seem to appear humble. But in his secret heart, there's contempt for everyone else. He nourishes an all-consuming, all-pervading pride in his heart. And there's a little altar that he bows down to inside himself. He says, there'll be blasphemers or revilers. It means people who are abusive. Abusive people speak disrespectfully to others. It's an adjective which means speech that's insulting, slanderous, blasphemous, abusive, reproachful, defaming, demeaning. It means to speak discourteously, slanderously against someone else, to speak ill. Church, hear me, to speak ill of someone else. There should be no room for that in your mouth. As children of God, there should be no room in our mouth to speak ill of someone else. It means to spread negative information about someone. Mm. He says they'll be disobedient to parents. I I don't need to explain that one. They'll be unthankful or ungrateful. Uh, that, That describes the ingratitude that results from taking everything for granted. These are people who don't appreciate anything. It's a you owe me attitude. It's interesting to me that in Romans 1, Paul says that ingratitude was only second to dishonoring God when he says they do not honor honor him as God or give thanks. In other words, there are two sins. They don't honor God and they don't give thanks to him. They're not thankful. They're not grateful. Describes men who are utterly destitute of gratitude towards God or others. They refuse, to, uh, re, they, they refuse to acknowledge the debt that they owe God and others. One of the things that we do when we pray in the morning is we've gotten to a point, Leslie started praying one morning, she's like, Lord, I just want to thank you so much for a bed, that I got a bed to sleep in, and I have cozy covers, and I have a roof over my head, and, and that started a, a time where we go into prayer, and we, we just start thanking God. Thank you that I have a job. Thank you that I have not one car, but two cars. Thank you that I can pay for insurance. Thank you that I had food in my cabinet. Thank you that I can go to the grocery store. There was a time, there was a time in my life not so long ago that I had to go to the grocery store with a calculator because I had to be careful with the amount of money that I spent on groceries because I didn't have it to spend. I'm grateful to have groceries in my cabinet. I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful that I have a sound mind. I'm grateful that I'm saved. I deserve hell and he gave me heaven. I'm grateful that he snatched me out of the muck and the mire. I'm grateful that I have a husband that loves me. I'm grateful that I have health in my body. I'm grateful that I have a a good memory. I'm grateful that I can retain scripture. I'm grateful. But Paul says in the end times people will become ungrateful and unthankful. They'll be unholy. This describes people who set aside God in order to live to please themselves, who ignore Scripture and say it doesn't apply to me that I can live however I want because I am saved by grace. They're unholy. These kind of people can only go in one direction towards wickedness because they instinctively resist anyone or ideas that would force them to measure themselves by God's standard. I'm telling you, this is infiltrating the church. Where if I preach on the word of God, somebody will say to me, No, that's really convicting, Rhea. <laughs> how about we bring a comedian in? Or how about we, we laugh? Or how about we do something fun and, and you make me laugh and feel good about myself? Could you preach on love? Could you preach on on grace, Rhea? Could you preach because you know, then I'm not challenged to change then I don't have to look at my life and I don't have to measure it by God's standard and therefore I will never change and I'll never transform because I can excuse my behavior and I don't have to live to please God. Paul says, oh, it's perfect for the end times. It's a sign of the end times. I, I, I'm going to jump ahead. Lynn, are you ready for me? Because I have to jump ahead. Because I, I said the word sign, and it just made me think of this. I, I'm from Pennsylvania, and I, I I love going home to me. <laughs> and, and when I, I go to Pennsylvania, the first sign I see is Illinois. Welcome to Illinois. And I'm like, huh, I'm on my way home. And then I go to Indiana, and I cross the Indiana line, and I see that exact same sign right there. And I get to Indiana, and I'm like, <clears throat> I'm a little closer to home. And then I get to Ohio. Now, my mom was born and raised in Ohio, so I always love to get to Ohio because I see the exit where we get off to go to her house when she was a little girl. And and I think, oh, I'm closer home. And But then I start crossing the Pennsylvania border, and I see this sign, which it says, pursue your own happiness. And I was born there. I'm just going to tell you that. but But I see... And I did pursue my own happiness for a very long time. It's ironic that I lived in Pennsylvania. But I get to Pennsylvania, and I'm like, oh, I'm almost home. I am an old lady who home is is Wisconsin with my husband. But I get so excited because I'm almost home. And then I get a little further into Pennsylvania, and I see State College. I, I see Penn State, and I'm like, we're Penn State proud. And I'm like, I'm almost home. And then a little bit further, and this is the street that my home was on, Route 104, rural country girl. And I'm like, I'm, but this is the kicker for me, Dave, am I right? This is the kicker, Leslie, she's been there. I, I live in this teensy tiny, blink your eye and you're through it town, and this is Cruiser's Cafe. And it is on the um, intersection of Route 104 where I live and, and 35. and. And, and there's a crossroads there, and I'll call my mom when she was still living. I'd be like, I'm at the crossroads. I'm almost home, mama. I'm passing cruisers. I can't wait to go there to eat. I love to eat there. That's so much fun. It looks like a dump, but they have such good food. And I'm like, I'm a cruiser's mom. And then I know just down the street two miles from there is my daddy's house. I'm almost home. Can I tell you that I believe we're at cruisers cafe? We're not in Illinois, we're not in Indiana, we're not even crossing the Pennsylvania line in last times. We are almost home. We're close to our daddy's house. It is almost, that we are almost at Cruiser's Cafe. That's where we're at right now. And Paul is saying, hear this. I, I want you to hear this, mark my words. In the last days, these are going to be the signs that you can tell you're almost home. You're almost home. And then he gives us all these signs of where we're at. (laughs) Unholy. Unloving. That word unloving means without natural affection. Unsociable. Inhuman. Inhumane. Unloving. It describes a lack of devotion to one's family. This is what really got me. Jesus, a lack of devotion to one's family. I am seeing people wreck their families because they just want to indulge. They just want to enjoy their life. They feel entitled. Forget God's word. Forget what God's word says. Forget that it's a fence of protection on your life. I am am just going to do whatever I want to do. And I I have a lack of devotion to my own family. I don't care who gets hurt. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Unforgiving. Unforgiving cannot allow for other people's mistakes or weaknesses. The word actually means truce breakers. That was interesting to me. Truce breakers. These are men who are unwilling to negotiate a solution to a problem involving a second party. It's like the Hatfields and McCoys. Their feuds never end. The thought is that these men—that uh, the, these men break a truce. That they—that that it is not that these men break a truce, but that they resist all efforts to reconciliation. It's a picture of an irreconcilable, irreconcilable person who, being at war, refuses to lay aside their enmity, even to listen to terms of reconciliation. I loved this one. One commentator says it's hatred and unforgiveness set in cement. Inre- irreconcilable describes a person who's who is hostile or, in comp- or uncompromisingly per- opposed it's one who's unwilling to negotiate a solution to a problem involving a second party now most commentators think that because Paul is talking about family he went from disobedient to parents to um, those who, who don't consider their family who are unloving, they lack devotion to their family. He, he thinks that this word unforgiving is actually uh, talking about in the last days there'll be a rampant outbreak of divorce in the end times. Hendrickson says, now these are not my quotes, I'm just quoting somebody else, so don't, don't yell at me. The breaking of a marriage covenant between a husband and a wife and the and the consequent skyrocketing divorce rate is one good example of this sin because in its purest form divorce is the resolute refusal to forgive the other party producing an unforgiveness set in cement both parties refuse to change no matter how desperate their own situation becomes and are determined to have their own way regardless of the consequences even to the point of knowingly destroying their own lives and the lives of their families. They do not forgive and do not want to be forgiven. They are beyond reasoning and inevitably self-destructive. As far as they are concerned, there is no compromise, no reconciliation, no court of appeal. Unforgiving. The next one he says is slanderers. This one rocked my world. It means malicious gossips but I saw something I had never seen before. The word is diabolos. Now you've heard me preach this enough times, that what is diabolos? The devil. That's the word for the devil. And this word is that word. And it's ironic because malicious gossips do the very work of the devil. There's a scripture that says, you're like your your father, the devil when you lie, when you deceive, when you gossip. Diabolos points out the fact that these individuals are like devils because they imitate the devil and constantly inventing and throwing evil reports and accusations at others. It means to falsely accuse and divide people without any reason. Do you know that when you slander somebody, when you gossip maliciously about them, you are doing the work of the devil? You're destroying a reputation. You're throwing slanderous words. You're throwing accusations. He is the accuser of the brethren. Do you understand that? And, and we behave like him when we gossip and slander. He says people will be without self-control. What time is it? Without self-control. It means without strength. It, it means without strength to resist the solicitations of one's passions. And it describes a man who's powerless and unable to govern his fleshly appetites. So these are people who cannot restrain their actions, their feelings, their desires, or their words. These men are without power over self is what the word means. It's over their own passions, over their own lusts. The body which God gave them to use for his pleasure has become a vehicle for their own pleasure, one commentator writes. They'll become brutal. That word means not tame, savage, fierce, uncivilized, violent, inhumane. It describes one that's not mild, not tame. It's the very opposite of gentle. These are people who are ruthless and unfeeling. They'll be despisers of good. Isaiah warned about people like this. He said, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Oh, my goodness, I'm telling you. That's the culture we're living in right now where we are calling evil good. Somebody said to Leslie the other day, well, there are only five verses in the Bible about that subject, so it maybe is not something God really cares about, so why are you caring so much about it? Well, there's one verse that says, he is the way, the truth, and the life, but we sure like that verse, don't we? We call evil good and good evil. That's despisers of good. Traitors, this one, this is my button because anybody who knows me will know that I value loyalty above everything else. Traitors, it means to um, betray. It describes men who betray another's trust and confidence and those who are false to an obligation or duty. It describes a readiness to betray one's trust or confidence. These men betray confidence and the trust that someone has put in them. Uh, last, next one, headstrong or reckless. It's someone whose behavior is rash, reckless, headlong, Uh, These people act foolishly, carelessly, completely unconcerned about the consequences for themselves or others. (laughs) It means they're headstrong in their determination to have their own way, regardless of advice to the contrary. There are people that I have met with that I have said to them, I promise you, this is where your choices are going to lead you. I I, I don't have a lot of mercy when I see somebody headed down the wrong path, when I see somebody who's reckless, who's going to destroy their lives, and the lives of other people, I'm pretty brutal. I can say, This is what God's word says. It's not Rhea's word. This is what God's word says. And you are headed down a reckless path. And usually, what they'll do is their heart is so callous that they don't care about the consequences to themselves or others. That person is headstrong and reckless. Paul says, Those people are going to exist in the last days. Don't be surprised. Those who are haughty or conceited. It means to be puffed up or conceited. People who have an inflated view of themselves. They have an exaggerated opinion of their importance, their intelligence, their appearance. Um, They have a much higher view of themselves than is justified. Um, The idea of conceit differs from lovers of self because the latter trait can be concealed while the very nature of conceit involves the importance of being noticed by other people, people who need to be noticed, who need to be seen, who put themselves in places where they can be. Um, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Oh, my. Lovers of pleasure. Phileo means to love, hedon. That's where we get our word hedonistic. Two words are combined. It means um, they love something that tastes sweet or something that's pleasant or enjoyable. Paul is saying in the last days, people will be obsessed with pleasure, with eating, drinking, partying, and entertainment. Rick Renner says, they'll be occupied with new methods to alleviate boredom. Life will become so soft and luxurious that people will overeat, be lazy, take unwarranted time off work, exist on borrowed money, and permit questionable moral behavior, all the while thinking that this is a normal, acceptable way to live. Ebert says they put devotion to self-satisfaction above devotion to God. Love for God is not controlling, um, is not the controlling motivation in their life. But the life application commentary, I loved this quote. He says, the list ends with how it began, with those whose love has become so misdirected that they can only think of themselves and their own desires. Those who fail to acknowledge God eventually aren't able to love God. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Verse 5 says, These people have a form of godliness but deny its power. And then he says, But from such people turn away. All of these negative, selfish characteristics come not from unbelievers but from people who call themselves Christians who have a form of godliness but deny its power therein. They're evident in people who have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. People who profess but do not possess godliness. People who have a form but deny its power. You say, well, what's a form, Rhea? Well, form is, uh, it looks good on the outside, but on the inside, it has no substance. The form of godliness is, I'm in church every Sunday, and I don't ever miss. I never miss Bible study. I, I can quote scripture. I can pray a good prayer. I, I never miss prayer group, and I love to pray loud and proud, and, and I look super good, and I can say all the right things, but behind closed doors, I'm behaving completely different. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power to walk out that godliness. Even though the same power that raised Christ from the dead is living within us, we indulge the flesh rather than walk in the spirit, and we wonder why we're powerless Christians who nobody wants the God we serve. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power therein. I want you to know that the flesh can put on a show of godliness while being empty of true spirituality. I love the AMPC. For although they hold a form of piety, true religion, they deny and reject and are strangers to the power of it. Their conduct belies the genuineness of their profession. Avoid all such people and turn away from them. One writer writes, these men go through all the correct movements and maintain all the external forms of religion, but they know nothing about the dynamic power of the spirit-filled, supernaturally energized Christ which transforms sinners into saints. They are masqueraders, charlatans, fakes. One lesson I pray in the morning. I say to the Lord constantly. Examine my heart. I don't want any false way in me. I don't want to be a charlatan. I don't want to be a fake. I want to be authentic. I want to be a laid down lover of yours. Lord, I am giving you permission to put your finger on any garbage, any masquerading in my life. Expose it, uncover it, reveal it, Lord God, because I want you to deal with it. I am done playing games spiritually. I believe we are living in the last times. The signs are clear to me. And we have got to wake up, church. Somebody said to me Friday morning, they said, you know, sometimes I send in your messages and I'm like, oh, that was hard to hear. And I said, I'm not going to change. I don't care if we empty out this whole room and there are three people left. There will be three strong believers who are sold out and laid down. Because that's the message I'm preaching. I am not interested in tickling ears or, or filling a, a, a pew. I'm not interested in numbers. I used to be very interested in numbers. Because I felt like it was, a, it was a, a, um, not a determination, but a, an evidence of whether or not I was successful in what I was doing. And then the Lord took me to the scripture where he had 5,000 people following him and he said something hard. And the Bible says that he, they turned and walked away. And he was left with the 12 and he said, Are you going to leave too? And, and one of them says, Where would we go? For only you have the words of eternal life. We don't like what you're saying, but we know it brings life. And so we'll stay. I know I preach a hard message. Can you imagine living with me? Can you imagine being my best friend? It's a hard message. This guy gets away with absolutely nothing. I don't get away with anything. You see, I won't ever be guilty of preaching a message that hasn't first preached to me. I won't do it. I won't be a fake. I won't be a charlatan. I won't be a masquerader. I can promise you the message I preach is hard, but it's a message I preach first to myself. It's a message. My team heard this message this week. They got the message. They got got a text from me saying, girls, we have to look at this thing in our life. The Bible says that judgment will begin with what? The church. The church if we're already judged, why would it begin with us? Mm, because they're masqueraders. This is not to make you feel condemned. Maybe convicted, because that'll change you. But never condemned. There's grace and there's mercy. I met. I. I. Can, I. I fit a lot of that list. I'm just telling you. There's grace, and I. I'm aware of it can't be perfect. I won't be perfect. I won't be complete till I stand before him and, and I will be glorified. There is justification, sanctification, glorification. Uh, when I came to Christ, I was saved what, uh, by grace, not by work so that no man can boast. When God looks at me, he sees the blood of Jesus that covers me. I am justified. It is just as if I've never sinned. That's how God sees me. But he says, Rhea, come on that same grace that saved you now lives within you and you are sanctified. It's a sanctification process. I I was saved, I'm being saved, I will be saved. The being saved process is that that I am am working out my salvation with fear and trembling. I'm working out my deliverance and I do that through obedience. And and the obedience process, I'm being sanctified. I'm starting to look more like God. Is it perfect? Am I perfect? (laughs) Ask Dave, absolutely not i mess up all the time bible says aim for perfection strive people say oh we don't strive we're saved by grace yes you were justified by grace it was just as if you've never said now you're sanctified by the same grace and you're aiming for, prote- for, prote- for perfection, you are, you are aiming to obey because of the, the power of God that lives within you, the grace of God that empowers and enables you. Will you be perfect? Not till you are glorified. That's, I, 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 I was saved, I'm being saved, I will be saved. That, that, that future salvation is when I walk into heaven. And now, I, I, back here, justification, I'm saved from the penalty of sin. Sanctification, I'm being saved from the power of sin. Glorification, I'm being saved from the presence of sin. When I stand before God, I will be perfect because he is perfect. Sin will not have any power in my life anymore, and I will not struggle with sin anymore. It's not going to happen until I walk through the gates of heaven but we've got to stop excusing it because the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives within us, empowering us, equipping us to say no to ungodliness. Everything you need for life and godliness is in you. Not when you get to heaven, it's in you now. Ray Pritchard, one of my favorite pastors, writes, in the last days, as men turn away from God paradoxically, they will become more religious, not less. Religion will become more and more popular as we approach the end times because people will seek some refuge in a world increasing, that has increasingly lost its way. They will ask the right questions but will follow the wrong answers. It will be religion for religion's sake, not religion for the sake of knowing Christ. They will join the church or some other religious organization. They will be baptized, attend the services, sing and pray and give and go through the motions, but their hearts will not be in it. They will deny the very power they profess to believe. In particular, they will embrace a kind of, hear this, in particular, they will embrace a kind of postmodern religion that allows them to do anything, believe anything, endorse anything, live in any way they choose, as long as it makes them happy. They will say things like, we don't need to be bound by outdated rules of the Bible. Those were written 2,000 years ago and don't apply to us today. That's not far-fetched. You can say things like that today and be elected a bishop in some denominations. That was Ray Pritchard, not Rhea, but... Pritchard. We can't hear a message like we heard tonight and not have to carefully examine our own hearts. We can if we're calloused and hard-hearted, but I hope that you'll take this and examine your hearts. I've examined mine all week long, and I'm sad to say I found myself on some of this list, and But the Holy Spirit warned us 2,000 plus years ago that a time was coming that we would experience perilous times. And I believe the times that we're living in confirm. Confirm that. I want you to think over 2,000 years ago, Paul described a climate that is much like the one we're living in today. We cannot deceive ourselves and believe that he is not coming back soon. And he's coming for a bride that's alert and waiting for him. Lamps trimmed, oil filled, and burning brightly for him. Would you stand? I'm going to ask Mari to come and close. But would you stand with me? Just I want to pray for you. I want to pray for myself. Father God, I want nothing more in this world than to know you. And I'm just at a place in my life where I don't even care has to happen for that to take place I just want to know you I want to know you better I want to know the power of your resurrection I want you to take me up higher with you in deeper with you Lord God I'm not interested in ankle deep I'm not interested in knee deep I want to go in over my head and Lord I know these people here tonight I know they're in agreement with me and so father I pray I pray, Lord God, that you would come and that you would fill us afresh and anew with your sweet Holy Spirit. That you would saturate our lives, Lord God, with your presence. That you would overwhelm us with your power. That you would give us hearts. Oh, Lord, we want hearts that are set on pleasing you. Lord, we don't want to be lovers of selves. We don't want to be lovers of pleasure. We want to be lovers of God. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for turning our gaze inwardly towards self instead of setting our eyes on things above, not on the things of this world. Forgive us, Lord, for being haughty and boastful and proud and arrogant, Lord. Headstrong, reckless, consumed with self. Gossips, slander. Lord keep a lock over our lips Father God forgive us Lord for thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought anything good in us is simply because of you Lord how dare we take credit for it forgive us for being ungrateful Lord ungrateful For thinking we earned something, we worked for something. Lord, if we have earned or worked for anything, it's because of your grace that enabled and empowered us to do it. You've given us a mind, intelligence, the ability to do it, Lord. Forgive us for being unholy, for entertaining thoughts that are contrary to your word, for doing things that were contrary to your word, for disobeying and calling it okay, for looking at something evil and calling it good. Lord, forgive us. Wash. Lord, I'm praying for a washing, a washing, a washing, Lord, of your spirit. Cleanse and purify your people, Father God. Purify me. Cleanse me, Lord God. I pray from the top of our heads to the tips of our toes, Lord, that your spirit would wash over us now. Wash away the impurities, the filth. Forgive us for greed. We've invested in a brand new outfit rather than invest in your kingdom. We bought a fancy new car, when we need a fancy new church. And we've called it good. Lord, misplaced priorities, selfishness, self-centeredness. Lord, I make so much about me. My feelings are hurt. They said that about me. They weren't nice to me. They laughed at me. Me, me, me. Meanwhile, a world is dying without you, ignorant of you, Lord God, and I've made it about me. You say rescue the perishing. Snatch them from the fire. Lord, (laughs) snatch them from the fire. There's been times I've wanted them thrown in the fire. Forgive me, Lord for being unforgiving. Unforgiving. For not having tolerance for people's weaknesses and shortcomings. Oh, but I want people to be tolerant of mine. Father, forgive me. Forgive us, Lord give us. Cultivate holiness in us, Lord, without which no one will see the Lord. That's what your Scripture says, Lord. And we discount it like it's nothing. We need to make a covenant with our eyes that we will not look on any unclean thing, any filthy thing, any impure thing. And yet we've called Good entertaining, what you call evil. We look to get life from what cost you your very life. Forgive us, Lord. Father, I'm not looking for an emotional moment, I'm looking for radical life change for myself and for your people I pray Lord God for the conviction of your Holy Spirit to come upon us if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways I pray for a turning then you'll hear from heaven and come and heal their land Lord our land needs healed. Lord, I stand with, who was it? Abraham. No, who was it? Lord, who says, will you will you relent if there's one good person? Ten. Ten righteous. Will you relent? I'm just asking you to relent. I'm calling on you to relent. I know you want to destroy, but I'm calling on you to relent and you did. Lord, we're asking you to relent. Our land needs Needs healed. Draw your people back to yourself, Lord. Sweep through this nation with the spirit of repentance, Lord God. Call your people back to yourself. I pray that hearts would be softened again. That we would not harden our hearts against the things of God, Lord God. I pray for a voice that goes forth, a beckoning, a trumpet that sounded, Lord God, that would call your people back to yourself. Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us, your people. Have mercy, Lord. Send the fire of your spirit across this nation. The winds of your spirit, Lord God. I pray that they would sweep this land. Awaken souls, open eyes to see like they've never seen before. We speak to deaf ears, to hardened hearts, Lord God, to calloused hearts. And we command ears to be opened, hearts to be softened, Lord God, and eyes to see. Blind eyes to see again that people would return to the law of life and that they would once again see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, that they would have eyes to see how good the Lord has been to them. And that we would no longer live ungrateful. Make us lovers of God again, Lord. That has to be a work of your spirit. Let it begin here tonight, Lord. Lovers of God. Lovers of God. Lay down lovers of God. Authentic, sold out, laid down lovers of yours. Fire of God. Burn in this place. Put a fire in our soul that we can't contain and that we would never want to control. Burn! Burn in us, Lord God. Burn away the dross. Higher heights, deeper depths, We want to know you better. Lord, we want to know you better. Jesus. Jesus.